The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Thank you very much for being with me on this Wednesday, a beautiful Wednesday in downtown Detroit. Uh, but we are not going to focus on Detroit today. We're going to focus on global affairs because there's a lot of potentially unsettling things happening around the globe. And anytime I want to talk about the Middle East and, and, uh, and frankly, just about anywhere in the world, I bring in my friend Saeed Khan, who, of course, is a professor of Near East and Asian Studies at Wayne State University or a senior lecturer, I should senior say. Senior lecturer. And also teaches at Rochester College and is a frequent guest on the program, both in an academic sense and also on the Follies when we get around to doing that. So I appreciate you being here, sir. Thank you. Great to be here as always. Well, let's start in in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Already the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia has been strained over the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, uh, which we have been focused on quite a bit on this program and the reaction to it. Uh, But it was really ramped up a notch Yesterday, 37 people, a mass execution that took place. Most of them were beheaded, but as you pointed out to me before we went live, one person was actually crucified yesterday. Uh, The justification for this was on terrorism grounds. Uh, But frankly, we have one person who was executed that was a student who was accepted to Western Michigan University, uh, was about to get on the plane a couple of years ago to come over here, was detained before he ever got on that plane. He was executed yesterday. What, 21-year-old kid, something like that? About that. Um, and, and you take a look at this. This is a country that we have a very serious trading relationship with, uh, a strategic relationship with. They keep pushing the boundaries of what we will tolerate, and it seems as if the Trump administration is willing to accept just about anything these guys do at this point. Well, I mean, to, to borrow from something that has already been said by, uh, by President Trump, this is the equivalent of the uh, crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, uh, having somebody beheaded in the middle of uh, downtown Riyadh, and no one's going to care and not the least of which is this White House. Uh, The fact that this uh, involves a young man who was coming to Western Michigan University does make this uh, sort of a Metro Detroit, Michigan uh, connection, unfortunately. This was seen as uh, even uh, more egregious than uh, some of the other conduct that Saudi Arabia has done. The last time there was a mass execution was in January of 2016 on New Year's. And similarly then, uh, the target was primarily uh, Shia Muslims, a minority sect uh, um, in the global Muslim context, but particularly when it comes to Saudi Arabia. They happen, though, to be concentrated on the eastern side of uh, the country where all the oil production, uh, refinement, and then transportation occurs. It is always uh, an easy target for the Saudi regime to say that they are uh, influenced by Iran and that they are agitating. In 2016, uh, one of the senior clerics of of, uh, the Shia Saudis was, in fact, uh, executed, uh, which was really uh, what would have been seen uh, as uh, a a new line that was crossed until now. You have uh, some people who were, as you said before, in their early 20s. They had initially been arrested uh, in their teens uh, as minors for simply being involved in uh, what would be uh, in, in the United States. Uh, 
not even political protest, uh, but just sort of getting out there and marching and maybe putting together a meme or so. Uh, any criticism of the monarch uh, and of the regime itself is seen as out of bounds. Uh, the fact that uh, the regime will go ahead and use a very broad stroke to define what is terrorism. In fact, even atheism is now considered to be terrorism in Saudi Arabia. Uh, the fact that they picked now to go ahead and have this uh, indicates, I think, two things. One, that uh, Crown Prince uh, MBS, who is really the de facto leader of, uh, of Saudi Arabia, wants to uh, show his legitimacy and show what he can do. And the other uh, factor is uh, provoking Iran. Uh, clearly, what we have is a set of measures that have been slowly taking place, uh, really also sanctioned by uh, the Trump administration to provoke Iran into making a misstep to then uh, warrant some kind of military action. Well, and, and let's talk about that a little bit, because, I mean, yeah, this is all coming together in a really interesting time. You have a situation where the Trump administration now trying to uh, punish anybody that is doing business with Iran on the oil front. So we've seen a number of countries uh, that the president wants to sanction in some capacity for their business relationships with Iran. Uh, in addition, they now are suggesting that military action against Iran is off the table temporarily. But it seems as if they're trying to make that, uh, you know, tighten, tighten the noose around their neck just a little bit more every time with actions like this. Uh, not to mention, of course, you know, the election of Netanyahu, the re-election of Netanyahu and their burgeoning relationship with Saudi Arabia even putting more pressure on Iran right now. And as you say, trying to provoke a mistake, what potential traps could Iran fall into on this one? Well, I think uh, we have to take a look at how the war is going in Yemen. Uh, this is something which is seen as Saudi Arabia's Vietnam, well, so to speak. And the U.S., of course, stepped in on that one the other day in terms of the, the Trump administration refusing to go along with condemning what was going on there in terms of Saudi Arabia's actions. That's right. Uh, Congress did uh, pass a resolution uh, condemning uh, American involvement, complicity uh, in the war in Yemen, which is a human humanitarian catastrophe, and uh, very strong allegations of war crimes uh, being conducted over there, including uh, airstrikes uh, by, uh, although so the Air Force, uh, American weaponry. Uh, that has taken out an, uh, a school and, in fact, uh, killed uh, dozens and dozens of children. So given the fact that the war is not only uh, going very poorly and the fact that it is so unpopular, uh, it's no doubt then that uh, the United States and Saudi Arabia especially want to provoke Iran into making a misstep in Yemen, uh, which will then be seen as a justification to uh, hit Iran itself. Uh, there has been, as you know, uh, recently the designation of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Council, uh, their sort of elite force, uh, as being a terrorist organization. And this is really unprecedented to have then uh, a, uh, a component of the government be declared a terrorist organization. Now, the Iranians, of course, went ahead and excuse me, reciprocated by designated the U.S. military and all of its various components to be terrorist organizations. I, mean, I, it, I wish this was funny. I mean, it seems like something out of Dr. Strangelove. This is, I guess we could call it the international relations uh, equivalent of Yo Mama going back and forth. Uh, the fact that uh, they're staring each other down in, in a kind of playground uh, vernacular, uh, trying to go back and forth and, uh, and score really cheap uh, uh, political points to some kind of base. In Iran, the hardliners, uh, and in the United States, uh, really uh, the base of uh, Trump's support. The, the interesting thing is, though, is this obviously the U.S., Saudi Arabia, Iran— 
Israel all involved in this. But with the actions taken by the U.S. government the other day in terms of trying to pressure these countries that are doing business with Iran, they're dragging in China, they're dragging in Russia, they're dragging in India and Turkey. And China has already pushed back. They said, we're not going to get cowed into this. Now, just to explain the sanctions, uh, anybody who is seen as breaching uh, the sanctions and still trading with Iran, whether it's on oil or anything else, is then subject to sanctions that they would not be able to trade with the United States. Given the fact that the U.S. has uh, the largest single market uh, for consumer products out there, that would certainly go ahead and affect China. It is being seen perhaps more, though, as a leverage point in the ongoing trade negotiations with China uh, to try to see if China will then yield to uh, some of the more uh, unreasonable demands that uh, that the uh, Trump administration is trying to impose upon it. Uh, China simply has too much skin in the game. Uh, China recognizes uh, the relationship between the U.S. market and their manufacturing uh, uh, capability. And so it'll be interesting to see how moving forward they're going to go ahead and uh, most likely circumvent this. I think that just and uh, perhaps a parallel is apt today that as the president is in announcing that he's going to defy all the subpoenas from Congress, uh, even at the risk of being held in contempt, so too China, I'm sure, will go ahead and flout the sanctions. And part of it is because Iran is going to play a very critical role in the reopening of the Silk Road, the so-called Belt and Road Initiative, which is going to start from China. It's going to go overland through several Central Asian countries, through Iran itself, through Turkey, another country you mentioned, and then all the way to the port of Rotterdam in the Netherlands with a few spurs coming off it in places like Burma or Myanmar and Pakistan and elsewhere. Now, given that and given pipelines being uh, also a chief issue uh, when it comes to this and China's energy dependency on countries like Iran, and let's face it, uh, India is similarly uh, energy dependent on on Iran. Uh, These are two of the largest emerging economies, uh, the two most populous countries. So uh, how much bite... Uh, Trump's uh, and Pompeo, Secretary of State Pompeo's bark will have on this threat of uh, sanctions for anybody who breaches the embargo on um, uh, purchasing um, Iranian oil remains to be seen. You know, I, I look at I look at uh, the way that both sides are, are acting in this. And when I say both sides, I'm talking about about uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. And I'm reminded a lot of of what led to the conflict in Vietnam in that, you know, Everybody's looking at these places like Yemen, Lebanon, all these other areas as sort of a hedge against the other's spread, territorial spread. So Iran, of course, is going to do anything they can to sort of create this buffer zone um, where they don't see sort of the dominoes toppling, the domino effect sort of theory here. And and I'm wondering if if I'm on the right thought process on this? I I don't know, but it just seems that way to me. Well, let's face it. I mean, when it comes to Iran, uh, there has always been this fear-mongering that Iran is looking at expansion. Uh, Iran doesn't need to expand territorially. Uh, It has an influence in the region and has uh, in the last 40 years. But I think that kind of influence is overblown. It certainly has uh, Syria and the Assad regime as a client. Uh, It certainly uh, supports Hezbollah in uh, in Lebanon. Uh, And I know that now there are efforts to try to designate all of Hezbollah uh, to be a terrorist organization, not just its military wing. But the fact is that uh, Iran is not 
uh, perceived as just the champion of the Shia populations in, in, in the region. They are also seen as uh, the best example of somebody who is defying American and Western imperialism, neo-colonialism. Uh, Vietnam was, uh, as you remember, uh, a situation where it was indigenous Vietnamese uh, embroiled in a civil war, but having along with that French colonialism and decolonization occurring. The argument can be made today that the only example of colonialism uh, involves Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states with the influence of the United States and Western powers. So uh, I suppose there's a dissertation in there somewhere. Yeah, well, I'm sure there is, and you'll, you'll be the one to write it. <laughs> Uh, my guest right now is Saeed Khan, of course, a lecturer in Near East and Asian Studies at Wayne State University. Of course, he also teaches at Rochester College, a frequent guest on the program. We're going to take a very short break here on the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. When we come back, some more to get to on this issue. We're also going to spend a little time in Myanmar, as uh, as Saeed just re- referred to just a moment ago, because there are some things that are happening there as well. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Craig Folly Show is made possible in part by Deadline Detroit, one-stop shopping for all your news. Also, home to Deadline Detroit TV, which includes The Zip, a weekly wrap-up of the week's news with some humor. Deadline Detroit, one-stop shopping for all your news. All right, welcome back. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Saeed Khan is my guest, and let's get back to this conversation. Um, You know, Mike Pompeo, of course, uh, in the Trump administration has made no secret of his distaste for all things Iran uh, in the past and John Bolton as well. There has been some discussion that they have been actively courting people uh, on the outside, perhaps Iranian expats who are would love to topple that government. They have made no bones about the fact that they would love to see the people in Iran rise up. These sanctions are designed to obviously make the economic situation in that country weaker than it already is. Any impact that it's having? Are we seeing any sort of internal discord as a result of some of these economic actions? Well, those are two things to focus on. One is discord and the other is the economic conditions within Iran. Uh, Regarding the latter, it is certainly having an impact. Uh, The Iranian economy... Uh, on the one hand, uh, certainly does suffer because of sanctions, the availability of goods, and even if those goods are available from uh, outside, uh, they are extremely costly. At the same time, what it has done, as these kinds of sanctions will do, is uh, embolden a sense of nationalism, national pride, and national manufacturing. Uh, Iran has become, uh, and they've been quite used to this uh, for the last 40 years of being under sanctions and embargoes, uh, become self-reliant in uh, their manufacturing base and in their industry. Uh, But there's also a lot of smuggling. Uh, I don't think that the Iranians are really lacking in having products show up for them. Whether this translates into political unrest, no, it doesn't, because the one thing that even uh, Foreign Minister Javed Zarif of Iran has said is that the more that you go ahead and uh, alienate and antagonize the country and particularly disparage the leadership, the more it brings the Iranian people together. And so we see that that is happening because they see that this is an existential threat that outside forces are imposing on the country, really for no good reason. Uh, You're right when you say that Secretary of State Pompeo has a kind of ahabic uh, obsession with uh, with Iran, and a lot of that has to do with his own uh, posture as an evangelical Christian and him uh, believing uh, that this is in the best interests of Israel. And part of the reason he feels that way is because 
newly reelected uh, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, um, if if Pompeo is Captain Ahab, then I think uh, Netanyahu is probably the admiral of the fleet uh, in uh, in his obsession uh, with uh, with Iran. Now, at the same time, you've got an individual like the National Security Advisor John Bolton, who's very hawkish. Uh, he's not so much driven by. Uh, his uh, interpretation of Christian theology, but he has been a longtime supporter of a group called the MEK, yeah. the Mujahideen e Khalq, uh, which is uh, and has been uh, referred to as both a cult and a terrorist organization. In fact, even the United States had it designated as a terrorist organization until only a few years ago. And within that time frame, people like Bolton, people like uh, Consiliari to the uh, the president, uh, uh, Rudolph Giuliani, uh, they have both been ardent uh, and unapologetic supporters of MEK. They have been on the payroll of MEK. They attend uh, conferences and uh, workshops by MEK and are prominent keynote speakers. So they have it in their mind uh, that there are the right local people or people from Iran who, uh, upon the toppling of the regime, will come in and be loyal clients of the United States. Now, uh, well, remind well, me again, uh, where have we heard I that think deja that would vu? Be the Shah, uh, you know, and uh, there have been a number of different uh, number well, of different instances where the U.S. tried to install some people. You've got that. You've got actually something a little bit more recently when a man by the name of Ahmed Chalabi in Iraq uh, claimed that uh, all the United States had to do was topple Saddam Hussein. Uh, U.S. troops would be met uh, with uh, cake and candy and flowers, and uh, Iraq would immediately, uh, with the blink of an eye, become this. A Jeffersonian democracy, uh, and one which would essentially be America's 51st or 52nd state uh, in uh, the Persian Gulf. Uh, that, I believe, hasn't happened. Yeah, it has not happened, as a matter of fact. Uh, you know, well, all right, let's take a look at some of the other incidents that are sort of uh, flaming tensions in there. Uh, we had a situation where ISIS tried to claim responsibility, claiming responsibility for the bombings in Sri Lanka on Easter. Uh, talk a little bit about what is happening there, and, and you know, is this just sort of a last gasp of a dying organization, or is this the, what they're going to be, de- be doing, retreating to the shadows, carrying out these types of operations, as opposed to trying to install a permanent caliphate? We have major problems every time uh, an administration announces mission accomplished for anything. Uh, ISIS is not dead. Uh, It has probably retreated into some level of dormancy. Uh, ISIS has a wonderful way, as does radicalism of any kind, to uh, mutate and to reemerge. It won't be called ISIS. It'll be called something else. Uh, It may even franchise itself out. Uh, But the idea of extremism is unfortunately a reality uh, as much as it is when it comes to uh, white nationalism or white supremacism. uh, Just uh, because uh, the Civil Rights Act was passed, uh, just because the Ku Klux Klan may be uh, done uh, formally, uh, doesn't mean that those uh, spasms and those uh, those feelings uh, go away. Uh, in the case of what happened in Sri Lanka, and I believe the death toll is now uh, over 350. Yeah. It, it keeps rising, unfortunately. Uh, I think it's quite telling that uh, it took a while for ISIS to claim responsibility. ISIS has never been shy to go ahead and claim uh, credit for anything. In fact, it'll go ahead and take credit for things it hasn't done uh, because it wants to project itself as being uh, bigger than it is, more influential. Uh, 
official than it is, more authoritative uh, than it really is. So we really don't know what's going on in Sri Lanka right now. There is uh, clearly a focus on one particular group, the national um, uh, uh, uh Jamaat uh, that's uh, um, uh, over there uh, with a firebrand, a very uh, sort of stereotypical-looking uh, cleric uh, who's involved. He's claiming that this was in retaliation for the Christchurch New Zealand attack on a mosque, which killed over 50 people. Uh, that seems incongruous. It also is very strange given the fact that Sri Lanka has never exhibited, uh, at least from the Muslim perspective, this kind of extremism. Yes, there has been suicide bombing. In fact, the suicide bombers, uh, the original ones were Tamil Tigers, who are Hindu, and they emerged uh, during a rather bloody and painful chapter in Sri Lankan history, which was their civil war, which only ended a few years ago. Uh, So there's a lot of unanswered questions, uh, and particularly when it comes to whether or not this is yet another example of Islamic extremism. Well, and interestingly enough, I mean, they they had warnings about this, allegedly. I mean, there's now the top two security officials in that country are are resigning and being forced out as a result. uh, The prime minister there suggesting that this could have been avoided. Um, They had warnings. Uh, but it doesn't seem like these people would, would technically be complicit in something like this. It, it, it. No, no. I mean, uh, Sri Lanka has, again, just reemerged from a very, very uh, bloody and brutal period. Uh, there is still a lot of political unrest and, uh, and uncertainty about the future, uh, given the fact that the country has cohered to a certain degree. Tourism is back, which is, of course, vital to its, uh, its GDP. Uh, people are definitely walking on eggshells to make sure there's not a, uh, a backslide. Now, I find it interesting when, when you talk about uh, them having the intel and not acting upon it. This, of course, was one of the big criticisms of then-National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice uh, in the days before 9-11, that there were ample signs that there was going to be a terrorist attack uh, of a, quite a dramatic scale in the United States, and the government didn't act on it. What it unfortunately does, though, is people still operate off the uh, presumption that governments are um, uh, competent and that they really are vigilant. And when the government doesn't seem to act in in, uh, in accordance with that, uh, conspiracy theories uh, come in saying, well, maybe the government was involved. So given the fact that uh, there is this kind of political unrest in uh, Sri Lanka coming into new elections in the future, uh, don't be surprised if we hear some of those allegations being made as well. Well, speaking of, of potentially fragile governments, fragile situations, uh, Myanmar uh, is is always on the verge of something bad happening, formerly uh, known as Burma. Myanmar... Um, their top court, this is kind of a big deal. Two journalists who were investigating um, basically a massacre of, of Rohingya, um, which of course, minority Muslim population in that, in that country, were jailed and have been in jail for about a year at this point in time. And the top court in Myanmar rejected their appeal, even though basically the government admitted that they framed these people, that you know, they pulled a John DeLorean on them, basically. It was entrapment. Here's some documents. And as soon as they handed the documents over to them, they arrested them for being in violation of, of an act there, the State Secrets Act or something like right. that. And and so their appeals are exhausted. These people are going to jail for a long time. Who knows what will happen to them in there? Uh, but the interesting thing is 
their reporting shed a lot of light on 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 Song Suu Kyi who a lot of people had high hopes to be this reformer in Myanmar, but it seems like it is backsliding to the t- same type of oppressive regime that they were dealing with before. Well, to be f- to be fair, and this is, of course, seems, a very a qualified... Seems is the key word. Sure. Uh, Aung San Suu Kyi was, uh, I mean, and still is, they haven't revoked that from her, uh, a Nobel laureate. They have certainly gone ahead and uh, revoked uh, many of the other honors that she has received. Uh, she has certainly come out uh, at best ambivalent about the uh, genocide against the, the Rohingyas uh, by the uh, the junta, by the regime. Uh, and there's a lot of speculation that she's fully complicit with it. Now, it's important to remember that the, the current government, as it is uh, in Myanmar, is still uh, the military junta uh, with different uniforms on. So to call it a democratic system is really, really stretching it. She herself is a political survivor. She was at one time a prisoner of conscience. Mm -hmm. Uh, It seems as though uh, she's uh, gotten more used to the former title. And as a result of it, she's playing it very safe to make sure that she uh, still has some role to play within the political structure of Myanmar, uh, even if it means uh, sacrificing or uh, violating and defying some uh, very key principles that she had when it came to human rights. Uh, and the Rohingya are uh, not collateral damage. They are a direct target now. Well, uh, all right. We've got only a couple of minutes left. And we talk about, you know, people who are in political prisoners, for instance, journalists getting uh, murdered, jailed. We've seen that happen with Jamal Khashoggi, obviously. And then, of course, these two journalists in Myanmar. But uh, a comedian, Hassan Minaj. Uh, is at uh, the Time 100 Gala last night. Jared Kushner is in the audience, and he directly calls out Jared Kushner, without saying his name, to his face about his relationship with MBS in Saudi Arabia um, and, and you know, not dealing, not putting any pressure on them to let out political prisoners in that country. He, of course, was specifically referring to a woman who was jailed for teaching people how to drive. Right. Um, and so talk a bit about what risk he's taking here? Is he taking a risk? Uh, and if he went to Saudi Arabia, what would happen to a guy like that? Uh, first of all, and maybe this is charitable, uh, Saudi Arabia may not grant him a visa. Yeah. Uh, that way, at least preemptively, uh, he won't have to worry about suffering the fate of uh, a Jamal Khashoggi. There is really zero tolerance of uh, criticism of the monarch, and particularly when it comes to somebody who now has the visibility, the platform, uh, as well as the uh, the acceptance of a, uh, a Hassan Minhaj. I mean, his show on uh, um, on uh, I think it's on Netflix mm-hmm. uh, is wildly popular. Uh, there was an episode, I think, the, one of the very first episodes, uh, directly took a swipe at MBS, uh, called out his uh, brutality, and now we see that uh, Hassan Minhaj is taking the next step by calling out the hypocrisy of uh, somebody like like a Kushner. And we still don't know the whole story about, I mean, after all, this is uh, MBS and Kushner uh, WhatsApp each other at 2 o'clock in the morning. Let me uh, help you ride this out. I mean, that's basically what Kushner was doing. Yes. I mean, he has, uh, just as, uh, as Cohen was uh, his uh, father-in-law's fixer, it seems like Kushner is now MBS's fixture, uh, fixer. The MBS whisperer. It is the, is the, the, the Saudi whisperer, absolutely. Uh, uh, not, not with a camel, but with a sheikh. Uh, and the, the fact that uh, Hassan Minhaj is shedding light to this uh, may actually embolden uh, especially a lot of young Muslims 
around the world to say maybe Saudi Arabia is not so great. Uh, it gets a free pass uh, by a lot of people because, after all, the two holiest cities in Islam are located there, Mecca and Medina. People are a bit gun-shy about wanting to criticize it because they don't want it to risk their entry into the country to perform the pilgrimage. Uh, Hassan Minhaj seems to have uh, gone ahead and jumped that shark. Well, my favorite line that he had about this whole thing when I was reading some of the quotes, and this is related to the Saudi government putting pressure on Netflix to not show his program in that country. And they complied, and they didn't show it. But, of course, that just made people want it more. So, of course, it gets traded. He goes viral. And as he said... For the first time in my life, I was a bipartisan icon, liberals and conservatives. They both embraced me like I was money from Big Pharma. <laughs> Just a great, great line from Hassan. So, all right, uh, we, we do appreciate it, Saeed. We always appreciate getting your insight. Hopefully uh, things don't spiral out of control too much. Um, but this seems to be just a really sort of tangled web that we're dealing with. Well, fingers crossed. I mean, we've got another uh, 18 months uh, before uh, the U.S. elections. Uh, we've got then uh, about 20 months before uh, the next inauguration or the re-inauguration. Uh, I think it's important to go ahead and uh, observe with great caution uh, and concern uh, what's happening with the U.S. administration and Iran. All right. Well, we'll follow it up when when the time comes but we'll talk to you as things as things warrant and we'll have you back on the folly soon as well that'll be great all right saeed khan has been my guest a lecturer in near east and asian studies at wayne state university also teaches at rochester college a frequent guest and friend of the craig folly show on deadline detroit thanks to michael lucido for engineering the broadcast today certainly do appreciate that as well we'll be back tomorrow don't forget you can find me anytime send an email to the craig folly show at gmail.com or leave comments on facebook i'm there all the time you can't avoid social media you have to be there as, as distasteful as it may be at times so find me that way all right we'll talk tomorrow thanks hey there my name is seth wrestler hi everyone it's becky scarcello i am new to the detroit area and i've been here my whole life so we started a podcast together it's called the d Brief. Detroit's arts and entertainment podcast. We cover concerts, comedy, plays, food, drink, all kinds of stuff. All the cool events around town, things to do, and the people that are doing them. Can we talk about some of the people we've had as guests on this podcast? Hey, this is Mark Curlyanchik, the restaurant critic for the Detroit Free Press. Hi, I'm Ian DeLisi, and I host Essential Music on 1019 WDET. Hi, this is Mark Ridley of Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle. Hey, this is Kate Williams, executive chef of Lady of the House. Hey, this is Meltdown from WRAF in Detroit. This is Josh Mallerman, author of Bird Box. This is Carmen Harlan, curator of film at the Detroit Institute of Arts. President and founder of Valentine Distilling Company. The general manager of innovation experiences for the Henry Ford. Arts and entertainment editor at the Detroit Free Press. Michigan Science Center. Arts Beats and If you like going out in the city of Detroit, you're going to like this podcast. The Debrief Podcast. We like to say Detroit's moving. Keep up. The Debrief. Your guide to Detroit's arts and entertainment scene.